0: Welcome back, everyone, to the best of 1001 Heroes. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Our number three listener favorite out of 449 stories we've done here at 1001 Heroes is the two-part story we did called The 1900 Galveston Storm, which still remains the deadliest natural disaster in American history. It caused an estimated 8,000-plus deaths and left 10,000 people homeless. Ending forever, Galveston surged to economic prominence, which had taken place in the decades just prior to the storm. The most moving part of this story is the story of the orphanage outside of the city, which was run by nuns. As the water surged up, the nuns led the children to the second floor, singing psalms to calm them, and finally tying themselves to the kids to keep them safe and close until the storm surge washed them off the second floor, along with those children who managed to escape to the roof of the building, some of whom survived. This was one of the most dramatic and heartrending stories I've ever covered, and our listeners must have been moved as well, as this was our number three most listened to episode. Here is part one, with part two to follow. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today's story, the 1900 Galveston Hurricane, the deadliest natural disaster in American history, part one, is a story of a storm, a hurricane so powerful that it very nearly wiped a well-to-do city of 38,000 people off the map. Galveston, in 1900, was the third largest city in Texas, and by most accounts, one of the wealthiest. In 1900, it was a fast-growing shipping center and business hub destined to become greater and seen by many as the up-and-coming Wall Street of the South. The 1900 Galveston Storm, often called the Great Storm, remains today the deadliest natural disaster in American history. Between six and 12,000 people were killed in one day, September 8, 1900 after a storm surge of between 8 and 12 feet inundated the Galveston Island coastline of Texas, accompanied by winds estimated at speeds of 140 miles per hour, making the storm a Category 4 on today's Saphir-Simpson scale of intensity. If the devil could have created a perfect storm, this would have been it. First, the few people in charge of storm predictions. And yes, there was a regional weather bureau in Galveston, answerable to the main bureau in Washington, D.C., the Galveston office having been in place for ten years prior to the storm. Aired terribly despite correct predictions from the weather center in Cuba. Secondly, the worst of the storm struck during the afternoon and evening, so that by nightfall people had no chance to see the entirety of what was going on and to escape. Third, a deadly combination of natural elements combined to wreak havoc on the coastline of Galveston. Cyclonic winds came roaring down from the northeast across Galveston Bay— which separates Galveston Island from the mainland of Texas, while at the same time, a huge storm surge was heading straight toward Galveston. The winds whipped up the storm surge, seeming to hold it back, then reversed, pushing it onwards and over the city. Keep in mind that in 1900, there was no geosynchronous weather satellite peering down from high above the equator, watching for suspicious puffs of disturbed air heading west from the coast of Africa. There was no hurricane hunter aircraft to track storms across the Atlantic and the Gulf of Mexico. There was no TV and no radio and obviously no internet. There were no computer crunch numbers calculating what combination of fronts and troughs would push and pull a storm this way or that. There was no projected path based on prior similar weather systems. There was no Doppler radar and no weather channel. All there was was rising and falling barometers and anemometers to measure wind velocity. Wired messages from ships at sea, telegrams, and human guesswork based upon experience. The norther pitched the rising waves against and over the wharfs, choking the wharfs, destroying ships at dock, and choking the city from that quarter. The streets rapidly began to fill with water until the first story of buildings were submerged, then the second story levels. Foundations built on sand melted away. Roofs blew off. Buildings and wreckage moved, tearing down other structures in their path, much like a tsunami wave destroys. But a tsunami retreats. This hurricane continued its destruction. Picture, if you will, a sea-level Galveston Island, on which the city of Galveston is located. The island is 27 miles long and 3 miles wide at its widest point. It runs north and east, and south and west. The highest point on the island, which was outside the city, was 20 feet above sea level most of the city was at sea level the highest point in the city of galveston was eight feet above sea level the wall of water that entered galveston was 10 to 12 feet high the gulf of mexico faces galveston island to the south and east to the north and west the bay of galveston you could say that galveston island is a barrier island just like one long sandbar here structures bodies boats and nearly every trace of humanity was in places swept northward for miles as if it were hit by a nuclear blast. For the next four days, the 1900 hurricane, becoming less intense but still deadly, would wreak destruction northward through the United States, creating cyclonic action up to Texas and Oklahoma, and finally disappearing past Prince Edward Island, Canada, after September 12, leaving a path of destruction and dead bodies behind. But it was Galveston that bore the brunt of the damage and the deaths. In addition to the thousands killed, the storm destroyed about 7,000 buildings, which included 3,636 demolished homes, leaving 10,000 people homeless, most of them, when the shock bore off, feeling lucky to be alive, while at the same time having to grieve for lost family, friends, and possessions. Very few people came through unscathed. The loss to human life that these people suffered in a single day is hard to imagine. The stories of survival are many, and we'll share some of them here, including first-hand accounts. The stories of heroism in the face of death are many. Legends grew from some of these stories, perhaps the best known of those being the incredible bravery shown by the Ten Sisters of the St. Mary's Orphan's Asylum, an orphanage which was located on the beachfront a few miles south and west of the city. Its purpose in being separated from the city being to keep the children far clear from the yellow fever which had struck the city in years past, a fever which for many of them had robbed them of their parents and family. The new location offered safety and a place of love and care to children ages 5 through 13 who had already lost their parents. St. Mary's consisted of two two two-story structures, a boy's dormitory and a girl's dormitory, both with open porches facing the gulf, both appearing partially protected by sand dunes, but still just a short walk to the water. Sand cedar trees, which are actually bushes which sometimes stand as high as trees, clung to the dunes, but to see any large trees they had to walk a few miles down the beach to see the three great old oak trees which marked the pirate Lafitte's grove. Those trees were tall and old, and surrounded with legend. Sometimes the children would walk there with the sisters and swing from ropes that clung to the lower branches. Those oaks were known to be shown as landmarks on three hundred-year-old maps, and were located about twelve miles southwest from the city. The giant oak trees had withstood the storms of three centuries— those grand sentinel oaks had witnessed the pirate Lafitte's war with the Karankawa Indians, had served as a guide for passing ships, had witnessed storms and shipwrecks, and had provided shade for laughing children. Here they still stood proudly, deeply rooted in the sand, and visible to anyone along either coast of Galveston Island. As author Paul Lester noted in his book, The Great Galveston Disaster, there prevails a belief that Galveston is subject to severe storms. That is a mistake. There were heavy blows, and there have been times when the waters of the bay and the gulf met in the city's streets. But the storm of September 8, 1900, was without parallel. The storm of September 8 did not, as has been supposed, come upon the city without warning. The same storm, less ferocious perhaps, had swept along the South Atlantic coast several days before. It had its origin in that breeding place of hurricanes, the West Indies and after swirling along the Florida and Carolina shores, doubled on its tracks, entered the gulf, came racing westward while developing greater strength with each hour, and centered all its might upon the Texas coast near Galveston. On September 7th, there was official warning of the approach of a severe storm, but no one expected such a tempest as was destined to devastate the city. Such warning as was given was rather addressed to mariners about to go to sea than to those living on shore. We know now that on August 27th, a ship east of the Windward Islands detected a tropical cyclone, the fourth observed during the annual season, initially determined to be at tropical storm status. As with most Atlantic hurricanes, it began as a tropical wave launched westward from the bulging northwest coast of Africa. What was to become the Great Storm of Galveston remained most stagnant in intensity while moving steadily west by northwestward and entered the northeastern Caribbean on August 30th. We'll return with our story right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. On September 1st, Father Lorenzo Ganguat, the director of Bellin College Observatory in Havana, Cuba, noted that the storm was in its formulative stages of a small tropical cyclone to the southwest of St. Croix. During that day, September 1st, the system passed to the south of Puerto Rico before it made landfall near Boni, Dominican Republic, early on September 2nd. Moving west by northwestward, the storm crossed the island of Hispaniola and entered the Windward Passage at St. Mark, Haiti, several hours later. The storm made landfall on Cuba near Santiago de Cuba during September 3rd before it moved slowly west-northwestward across the island and emerged into the Straits of Florida as a tropical storm on September 5th. As the system emerged into the Straits of Florida, Gangoit saw a large, persistent halo around the moon, while the sky turned deep red and cirrus clouds moved northwards. This indicated to him that the tropical storm had intensified and that the prevailing winds were moving the system towards the coast of Texas. He sent this forecast by wire to the United States Weather Bureau, as it was then called, in Washington, D.C., which disagreed with his forecast, thinking they knew better. They expected the system to recurve and make landfall in Florida before climbing up the American east coast. "'And what does some whack in Cuba know about hurricane paths anyway? "'And all that gibberish concerning moon halos and red skies. "'It's the science, man. Get with the science.' "'But Father Lorenzo Gangwat was right. Quite right. "'In the eastern Gulf of Mexico, on September 6th, "'the ship Louisiana encountered the hurricane, "'whose Captain T.P. Halsey estimated that the system "'had wind speeds of hundred miles per hour.' The hurricane continued to strengthen significantly, picking up steam from the warm waters of the Gulf while it headed in a west-northwesterly direction. On September 7th, the hurricane reached its peak intensity with estimated wind speeds of 140 miles per hour, making it what we call today a Category 4 hurricane, capable of extreme flooding and wind damage, and it was heading straight for Galveston. At this point, the Galveston Weather Bureau, headed by Isaac Klein, was ignoring or refuting the information from Cuba, thinking that he and they knew best what posed a threat to his city of Galveston. There had been no warning from Willis Moore, the director in Washington, D.C., who had also been asleep at the wheel, ignoring the telegrams from Cuba, and therefore no cause to issue a warning for Texas yet. As for Galveston, they had been hit by storms before and survived them easily. The residents of Galveston were giving no warnings from their local weather bureau, although many of them were quite aware of what storm damage could do to their coast. Just a quarter of a century earlier, in 1875, the Texas coast town of Indianola on Matagorda Bay had been hit and nearly destroyed. When a second hurricane slammed into it in 1886, many of the residents gave it up for good. Taking this as a warning, some Galveston residents begged for a storm wall, but the city government would not listen. The city planners were living large, fat, happy, and complacent in their boomtown port city. In fact, instead of considering building a seawall, they got busy removing the coastal sand dunes in order to fill low, swampy areas in the city so they could be built on, which, of course, provided new tax revenue and higher salaries for themselves. Anyway, by 1890, they had technology on their side, so there was no need to worry. They had a new weather bureau to warn them of any approaching danger. Isaac Klein, director of the Weather Bureau's Galveston office, had written an 1891 article in the Galveston Daily News saying that it would be impossible for a hurricane of significant strength to strike Galveston Island. His attitude and ignorance would cost he and the city dearly just nine years later. Meanwhile, on September 7, 1900, the telegrams were flying between Washington's Weather Bureau and Cuba. Willis Moore, the D.C. director, according to one historian, was so jealous of the Cubans that he shut off the flow of data between Cuba and the U.S. Maybe it wasn't jealousy. It might have been an old grudge from the Spanish-American War. Who knows? At any rate, Moore showed up to be the fool more than once in this story. At the same time, he established the fact that he was the big cheese by shutting off Cuba's contacts. Moore then issued an order that regional forecasters could not issue a hurricane warning unless Washington approved it first. In those times, however, getting approval by telegraph or telegram was not often done in a day. They were getting a little full of themselves in Washington, D.C. Not shocking news for most of us today. The Washington Bureau, as well as Galveston, thought the hurricane would travel up Florida's east coast and placed a warning north as far as Kitty Hawk, but knowing it might turn around and to be safe, they placed a hurricane watch from Pensacola to New Orleans on the Gulf side, totally ignoring Cuba's warning regarding the Texas coast. Cuban forecasters vehemently disagreed with that call, saying Texas was in the path. In Galveston on the morning of September 8th, the swells persisted in spite of partly cloudy skies. Largely because of this unremarkable weather and any lack of warnings, locals saw no immediate threat, although the wind was picking up. Rain clouds were approaching by late morning. Isaac Klein, his barometer started dropping like a lead ball, and his ananometer flew away from its mooring on the side of his building. At least one account says that at that point, on the morning of the day it hit, he decided to ride his horse along the beach like Paul Revere, warning folks of the storm's approach. Isaac and his brother Joseph, who was also a meteorologist and worked there at the Galveston Bureau, apparently tried to cover their tracks later, with reports that Joseph did issue a warning. But that has been challenged by historians. Some say there was one, but it was too late to accomplish anything. Others say his riding down the beach was all of it. Due to the lack of living witnesses to their activities, no valid information is available. Perhaps a few of you who are in the know think I'm being a little hard on Isaac Klein. After all, he was billed as the hero of Galveston, had lost his wife, but saved his children in the storm, and was believed at the time to have saved many lives. In post-Storm Galveston, Isaac was treated like a hero, fighting against the odds to save everyone. Enter author and researcher Eric Larson. "'who spent years researching the Galveston Hurricane, "'and who presented quite a different picture of Isaac Klein "'in his 1999 book, Isaac's Storm. "'Isaac was a scientist, "'and based his decisions on what science was available, "'and he was absolutely convinced that he was the science. "'His brother Joseph had had a premonition "'that the storm would be horrific, "'but Isaac basically told his brother to pound sand, "'stop fear-mongering and keep his opinions to himself. "'Nothing was going to happen to Galveston.' In his report to Washington after the storm, Isaac, no doubt wanting to save his career and make himself look like a hero, added the story of how he rode his horse down the beach in high winds trying to warn the citizens of Galveston. The Washington Weather Bureau, knowing that they deserved a portion of the blame, began circling the wagons rapidly, as screw-ups are wont to do, and notified Isaac Klein that he was a hero, and so were they, because they sent out warnings, too. Klein was promoted, as you might expect, to a bureau job in New Orleans, and his worrywart brother Joseph was transferred to Stormy, Puerto Rico, where he could scream storm coming to his heart's content and be kept far away from the Washington Bureau and his success-bound brother. According to Eric Larson, Joseph never forgave his brother for the debacle. My friends at the History Channel did a great two-hour documentary on Eric's book, also called Isaac Storm, just a few years ago. If you can find it, you'll enjoy it In Galveston on the morning of the 8th, things went on as usual, with the knowledge that a storm was coming, possibly a hard rainstorm, possibly something worse. Waves were getting larger on the beach in front of the orphanage, where the Sisters of Charity were watching closely, as dark clouds filled in the sky and the waves got higher. Sister Elizabeth Ryan, one of the ten sisters at St. Mary's Orphanage, had left early that morning for town, along with one of the older boys, to collect food from the sisters' hospital in the city to take back for the children's dinner. Reaching town in the early morning, she could see that high tides were already flooding some of the downtown streets. Despite pleas from Mother Gabriel, the assistant superior at St. Mary's Infirmary, asking her to stay until the storm passed, Sister Elizabeth Ryan insisted that the children needed dinner, and she already had their provisions in the wagon, so to stay was impossible. As she drove the wagon back toward the orphanage, she could plainly hear the surf crashing and saw the dark clouds threatening. The wind had been blowing from the north all morning, was now twice as strong as it was when she was headed toward the city. She passed houses made of stone, of brick, and wood. There were all kinds along this beachfront. Some had been built on pilings to allow high water to pass beneath. Some stretches were just dunes and small trees that they called salt cedar trees. Sister Elizabeth knew they were in for a hard storm. She could see it, and she could feel it. It was unlike anything she had ever seen. This was a norther to be reckoned with. "'driving right into the face of what looked to be a hurricane. "'The children she knew would need to be moved to the newer dormitory. "'She shook the reins and urged her horse on. "'Some old-timers were watching the incoming storm as well, "'knowing that as long as the north wind held strong, the city was safe. "'This was the talk in the bars and businesses that had not yet closed. "'While the winds dashed great volumes of water over the wharfs "'and flooded some streets in the business portion of the city,' "'and the waters of the gulf on the other side of the city "'encroached upon the streets near the beach. "'There was no particular fear of serious consequences. "'But come noon, the barometer, which had been very low, "'suddenly began to drop at a rate "'that presaged a storm of tremendous violence. "'Only a select few of barometers, however, "'were witness to that. "'The wind would, before many hours, "'change from the north to the southeast "'and add to the fury of the wall of water "'being driven upon Galveston by the approaching hurricane.' To the already rising water would be added all the tremendous force of the wind that had previously acted as a partial check to the Gulf storm. To those who previously felt no fear, the certainty that the wind would change and did change came as the first real note of warning. With the first shifting of the wind, the waters of the Gulf swept over the city. Houses near the beach began to crumble and collapse, their timbers being picked up by the wind and waves and thrown in a long line of battering rams against the structures men, women and children fled from their homes and sought safety in higher portions of the city or in buildings which appeared more strongly built. Some tried to get out in boats, some in wagons, some waded through the waters, but the approach of night found many thousands battling in the waters unable to reach places of safety. The air was full of missiles as the hurricane force winds ripped roofs off buildings and flung splintered wood in all directions. There was no safety from the rising water. They were all locked on an island surrounded by the gulf and the bay, on a sandbar that was soon to become a raging ocean of water. The wind tore slates from roofs and carried them along like wafers. A person struck by one of these, driven with the fearful violence of the storm, was certain to be maimed, if not killed outright. The waves, with each succeeding sweep of the inrushing tide, brought a greater volume of wreckage as house after house toppled and fell into the waters. So tremendous was the roar of the storm that all other sounds were dwarfed and drowned. During the eight hours from 4 p.m. until midnight, the hurricane raged with a fury greater than words can describe. What height the winds reached will never be known. The wind gauge at the Weather Bureau recorded an average of 84 miles an hour for five consecutive minutes and then the instruments were carried away. That was before the storm had become really serious. The belief, as expressed by some observers, the likelihood that at one point the winds reached 140 miles an hour was made evident by the kind of destruction that it caused. Milton Efford was a young man living in Galveston with his mother, father, and a young nephew named White. Milton was the only one of his family to survive the storm. He later described the experience in a letter to his brothers in North Dakota. He wrote, We left our house at about 4 p.m. in the afternoon, thinking we would be safer in a larger house not dreaming that even that house would be washed away. We went across the street to a fine, large house built on a brick foundation high above the ground. At about 5 p.m. the storm grew worse and began to break up the fence, and the wreckage of other houses was coming against us. We had arranged that if the house showed signs of breaking up, I would take the lead and Pa would come next, with Dwight and Ma following them. In this way I could make a safe place to walk as we would have to depend upon floating debris for rafts. There were about 15 or 16 people in the house besides ourselves. They were confident that the house would stand anything. If not for that, we could have probably left on rafts before the house went down. We all gathered in one room. All at once the house went from its foundation, and the water poured in waist deep, and we all made a break for the door, but we couldn't get it open. Then we smashed out a window, and I led the way. I had only got part way out when the house fell on us. I was hit on the head with something and had knocked me out and into the water head first. I do not know how long I was down as I must have been stunned. I came up and got hold of some wreckage on the other side of the house. I could see one man on some wreckage to my left and another to my right. I went back to the door that we could not open. It was broken in now and I could go part way in as one side of the ceiling was not within four or five feet of water. There was not a thing or person in sight. I went back and got on the other side but no one ever came up that I could see. We must have all gone down at the same time but I cannot tell if they came up. I then started to leave by partly running and swimming from one lot of debris to another. The street was full of tops and sides of houses and the air was full of flying boards. I think I gained about a block on the debris this way and got in the shelter of some buildings. But they were fast going down, and I was afraid of getting buried. Just then, the part I was on started down the street, and I stuck my head and shoulders into an old tool chest that was lying in the debris that I was on. I could hardly hold this down on its side from being blown away, but that is what saved my life again. When the water went down about 3am, I was about 5 blocks from where I started. My head was bruised, and legs and hands cut a little, which I did not find out until Monday and then I could hardly get my head on from the swelling. As soon as it was light enough, I went back to the location of the house, but not a sign of it could be found, and not a sign of any house within two blocks, where before, there was scarcely a vacant lot. I then went to City Hall to see the Chief of Police to get some help to recover the corpses, thinking, I guess, that I was the only one in that fix. The firemen and others started before noon to bring in corpses. They brought them in in wagon loads about a dozen at a time, laying them down in rows to be identified, and the next day they were badly decomposed and were loaded on boats and taken to sea only to wash back upon the beach. They then started to bury them wherever they were found, but yesterday, Wednesday, the corpses were ordered burned. They started removing the debris and burning it, and when they came upon a corpse, it was just thrown upon the pile of burning bodies. A graphic description of one man's experience was given by a commercial traveler. William Van Eaton he reached galveston saturday morning his narrative is especially interesting because it shows with what suddenness the storm assumed a dangerous character there was high wind and rain said he but so little was thought of it however that myself and some acquaintances started down to the beach the water came up so rapidly that we turned and hurried toward the tremont hotel before we reached it we had to wade in water waist deep within a few minutes he went on to say Women and children began to flock to the hotel for refuge. All were panic-stricken. I saw two women, one with a child, trying to get to the hotel. They were drowned not three hundred yards from us. Mr. Van Eaton was one of the first to cross from Galveston to the mainland after the storm subsided. He paid fifteen dollars to a boatman to make the crossing. When he reached the point, he found an engine and a caboose chained together, with the water several feet deep around them. While he waited in the caboose for the water to go down, the bodies of two men and a boy floated against it, and the trainmen tied them to one end of the car. Mr. Van Eaton counted fourteen bodies that had drifted in from the bay, all showing that they had been dashed against wreckage. Patrick Joyce, a railroad man who passed through the storm at Galveston in 1872, suffered such hardships in that city Saturday morning that he was convinced that the storm at that time was only a mild little blow in comparison. He was one of the refugees picked up at Lamarck. It began raining in Galveston early Saturday morning, he said. About nine o'clock, work was discontinued by the company, and I left for home. I got there at about eleven o'clock and found about three feet of water in the yard. It began to get worse and worse, the water getting higher and the wind stronger, until it was almost as bad as the gulf itself with its raging torrents. Finally, the house was taken off its foundation and demolished. There were nine families in the house, which was a large two-story frame, and of the fifty people residing there, myself and my niece were the only ones who could get away. I managed to find a raft of driftwood or wreckage and got on it, going with the tide. I had not gotten far before I was struck with some wreckage and my niece knocked out of my arms. I could not save her and had to see her drown. I was carried on and on with the tide, sometimes on a raft, and again I was thrown from it by coming in contact with some pieces of timber, "'parts of houses, logs, cisterns, and other things "'which were floating around in the gulf and bay. "'Many and many a knock I got on my head and body "'until I was black and blue all over. "'The wind was blowing at a terrific rate of speed, "'and the waves were way up. "'I drifted and swam all night, "'not knowing where I was going or in what direction. "'About three o'clock in the morning "'I began to feel the hard ground, "'and then I knew I was on the mainland. "'I wandered around until I came to a house,' and there a person gave me some clothes. I had lost most of mine soon after I started, and only wore a coat. I was in the water about seven hours, and this sensation, together with the feeling of all those bruises I had on my head and body, is not a pleasant one. I managed to save my own life through the hardest kind of struggle, but I thought more than once I was done for, and I lost all I had in this world. Relatives who were dear to me, home and all. James Black, a well-known merchant at Morgan's Point, saved nine lives during the storm. The story of his heroism was told by W.S. Wall of Houston, who has a summer home at Morgan's Point. "'My wife was taking supper at the Black Hotel,' said Mr. Wall, when Mr. Black rushed into the dining room and called upon all to fly for their lives. The tidal wave was on them in an instant, and almost before they could leave the hotel to go to a higher point where the Vincent residence stood, some five or six blocks away.' The rushing waters were all about them more than three feet deep. Mr. Black, struggling against the elements, bore my wife in safety to the Vincent home, miraculously escaping being crushed by a heavy log which the rushing waters carried along the pathway of escape. Returning immediately to the hotel, Mr. Black in like manner brought safely to the Vincent home his aged father and mother, Mr. and Mrs. James Black, Sr. His next act of heroism was to rescue Mrs. Rushmore, her two daughters two grandchildren and another woman whose name I cannot recall. The Vincent home withstood the storm, but the Black Hotel was wrecked. Louis Brackett, manager of the Black Hotel, was engulfed in the waves and gave up his life in the successful rescue of his wife and a colored servant girl. F.T. Woodward, who was a passenger on the first train to arrive in Dallas, Texas from Houston, the Monday night succeeding the catastrophe, spent a thrilling Saturday night in the Grand Central Station in the latter city. 150 other persons shared his memorable experiences. The depot, standing as it does isolated and alone, said Mr. Woodward, was exposed to the full force of the hurricane, and the first strong gust at 8 o'clock was followed by a sound of shattering glass. Several of the windows of the general offices overhead had given away under the almost irresistible pressure. This was the beginning of seven hours of mortal dread. The storm continued to rage with unabated fury and the roar of the wind was accompanied by the sound of crashing glass as one after another of the many windows was torn from its fastenings and shattered against the brick walls of the building or upon the sidewalk below. Women clasped their children in their arms as though they expected to be torn asunder the next moment. Men began to scan the pillars and partition walls supporting the floor above, and to take up such positions as seemed to be most conducive to safety, in the event the huge building was raised by the storm. The crashing of glass was soon followed by a sound of ripping and tearing. Section after section of the tin roof was rolled up like sheets of parchment and hurled hundreds of feet away. To add to the terror and confusion, the electric light suddenly went out, and the building was left in darkness, except where the trainmen with their lanterns stood. Then many moved toward the main entrance of the building with the evident intention of seeking other quarters, but they were checked at the door by the blinding sheet of water which was driven by the wind at mighty force and which lay between them and any place of refuge. They appeared to hesitate between a choice of being drenched by water and possibly struck by a flying section of roof, or of remaining in the depot until the end. The question was soon settled. Even as they looked, the roof of the Grand Central Hotel was torn off many of its inmates rushing into the street. Almost simultaneously, a wail went up from the people in the Lawler Hotel as the big skylight on top was torn loose and fell crashing down the shaft, causing pandemonium. This seemed to satisfy those in the depot that no haven of safety could be found, and they determined to make the best of the situation. Just then, above the roar of the wind, the crashing of glass, and the flapping and pounding and tearing of tin, a new sound was heard. It was that of falling brick. Everyone stood crouched, prepared to leap to either side as the occasion may require. Everyone realized the gravity of the situation. But there was no shrieking and no fainting. Every woman stood the ordeal with such fortitude as to lend courage to even the faintest-hearted man. Even the babies were mute and clung to their mother's necks in breathless despair. Nearer and nearer came that awful rumbling. A shower of brick and mortar fell in the rear of the women's waiting room. Nothing remained of the tin-covered awning. Few, if any, doubted that the end had come and that in another moment all would be buried beneath the ruins. Suddenly, the sounds ceased. The brick had fallen and the lower story of the building remained intact. It was soon learned that the entire wall stood unbroken and that the fall of brick and mortar was but the collapse of several large chimneys surmounting the top of the building. As soon as this became known, the effect upon the awestricken mass was electrical. Men lighted cigars. Women cheered and laughed. And though more chimneys fell, more glass was shivered and the loosened tin on the roof continued to pound furiously until nearly three o'clock in the morning. There was no more panic and all felt that the building would withstand the fury of the storm. And it did. The scene on the docks was a terrible one. The small working fleet and the larger schooners were washed up over the docks and railroad tracks in frightful confusion. The Mallory docks were demolished. The elevators were torn in shreds Three ocean liners were anchored off the docks and seemed to be in good condition. The damage to the shipping interest is something immense, the Huntington improvements being entirely swept away. The waters of the bay were strewn with hundreds of carcasses of dead animals. We had a very hazardous passage running against a five-mile tide, but managed to reach North Galveston at 1.35 o'clock. At North Galveston we found that a tidal wave had crossed the peninsula, carrying destruction in its path. The factory building and the opera house were completely blown down and other buildings destroyed. While there were no deaths reported at North Galveston, there were many hardships endured during the battle with the elements. One newspaper reporter managed to get into town just before the storm. He wrote, About noon it became evident that the city was going to be visited with disaster. Hundreds of residences along the beachfront were hurriedly abandoned, the families fleeing to dwellings in higher portions of the city. Every home was open to the refugees Black or white. The winds were rising constantly and it rained in torrents. The wind was so fierce that the rain cut like a knife. By five o'clock, the waters of the Gulf and Bay met, and by dark, the entire city was submerged. The flooding of the electric light plant and the gas plants left the city in darkness. To go upon the streets was to court death. The wind was then at cyclonic velocity. Roofs, cisterns, portions of buildings, telegraph poles, and walls were falling and the noise of the wind and the crashing of the buildings was terrifying in the extreme. The wind and waters rose steadily from dark until 1.45 o'clock Sunday morning. During all this time, the people of Galveston were like rats in traps. The highest portion of the city was four to five feet deep underwater, while in the great majority of cases, the streets were submerged to a depth of 10 feet. To leave a house was to drown. To remain was to court death in the wreckage. Such a night of agony has seldom ever been equaled. Without apparent reason, the waters suddenly began to subside at 1:45 a.m. Within 20 minutes, they had gone down two feet, and before daylight, the streets were practically freed of floodwaters. In the meantime, the wind had veered to the southeast. Very few, if any, buildings escaped injury. There was hardly a habitable dry house in the entire city. When the people who had escaped death went out at daylight to view the work of the tempest and the floods they saw the most horrible sights imaginable. In the three blocks from Avenue N to Avenue P in Tremont Street, I saw eight bodies. Four corpses were in one yard. The whole of the business front, for three blocks in from the gulf, was stripped of every vestige of habitation, the dwellings, the great bathing establishments, the Olympia, and every structure having been either carried out to sea or its ruins piled in a pyramid far into the town, according to the vagaries of the tempest. The first hurried glance over the city showed that the largest structures, supposed to be the most substantially built, suffered the greatest damage. The orphan's home, 21st Street and Avenue M, felt like a house of cards. How many dead children and refugees are in the ruins could not be ascertained. Of the sick in St. Mary's infirmary, together with the attendants, only eight are understood to have been saved. The old woman's home on Rosenberg Avenue collapsed and the Rosenberg schoolhouse is a mass of wreckage. The Ball High School is but an empty shell, crushed and broken. Every church in the city, with possibly one or two exceptions, is in ruins. At the forts, nearly all the soldiers are reported dead. They having been in temporary quarters, which gave them no protection against the tempest or the flood. The bay front from end to end is in ruins. Nothing but piling and the wreck of great warehouses remains. The elevators lost all their superworks and their stocks are damaged by water. The life-saving station at Fort Point was carried away, the crew being swept across the bay 14 miles to Texas City. I saw Captain Haynes yesterday, and he told me that his wife and one of his crew were drowned. The shore at Texas City contains enough wreckage to rebuild a city. Eight persons who were swept across the bay during the storm were picked up there alive. Five corpses were also picked up. In addition to the living and the dead which the storm cast up at Texas City, Caskets and coffins from one of the cemeteries at Galveston were fished out of the water there. The cotton mills, the bagging factory, the gas works, the electric light works, and nearly all the industrial establishments of the city are either wrecked or crippled. The flood left a slime about one inch deep over the whole city, and unless fast progress is made in burying corpses and carcasses of animals, there is high danger of pestilence. Some of the stories of the escapes are miraculous. William Nisbet, a cotton man, was buried in the ruins of the Cotton Exchange saloon and, when dug out in the morning, had no further injury than a few bruised fingers. Dr. Young, secretary of the Cotton Exchange, was knocked senseless when this house collapsed but was revived by the water and carried ten blocks by the hurricane. A woman who had just given birth to a child was carried from her home to a house a block distant, the men who were carrying her having to hold her high above their heads as the water was five feet deep when she was moved. Many stories were current of houses falling and inmates escaping. Clarence N. Owsley, editor of the Galveston Evening Tribune, had his family and the families of two neighbors in his house when the lower half crumbled and the upper part slipped down into the water, but not a single person in that house was hurt. Of the Levine family, six out of seven are reported dead. Of the Burnett family, only one is known to have been saved. The family of Stanley G. Spencer, who met death in the Cotton Exchange Saloon, is reported to be dead. Eight ocean steamers were torn from their moorings and stranded in the bay. The Kendall Castle was carried over the flats from the 33rd Street Wharf to Texas City and lies in the wreckage of the Inman Pier. The Norwegian steamer Gryler is stranded between Texas City and Virginia Point. An ocean liner was swirled around through the West Bay, crashed to the Bay Bridges, and is now lying in a few feet of water near the wreckage of the railroad bridges. It will take a week to tabulate the dead and the missing and to get anything near an approximate idea of the monetary loss. It is safe to assume that one half of the property of the city is wiped out and that one half of the residents have to face absolute poverty. John Davis, having apartments in a huge flat building, whose wife was killed and for whose body he was searching in the debris of the structure, said there were 52 families there when the house collapsed, and he was the only survivor. Policemen John Bird and John Rowan "'rescued about a hundred people Saturday from the fury of the storm. "'They returned to the police station "'only when the high water floated the patrol wagon "'and threatened to drown their team. "'They had no idea that the waters of the Gulf "'had invaded the western portion of the city where they lived "'until they returned to the police station. "'They started immediately for their homes, "'but their families had been swept away. "'Policeman Burr lost his wife and five children "'and Rowan, his wife, and three children.' Many refugees were picked up at Hitchcock and taken to the Jackard Hotel, where they were given every possible attention. Many of these refugees were suffering from injuries and had been in the water for some time. Most of these persons had floated in on drift and rafts, and one of the party came ashore on a piano. Then there was the story of John Blagden. This was a letter written by John Blagden to his family in Duluth, Minnesota, while serving a temporary assignment at the Galveston Weather Bureau office away from his permanent station in Memphis, Tennessee. "'Aside from Isaac Klein's personal report, Blagden's letter is the only other account "'at the Rosenberg Library "'of pertaining to someone stationed "'at the Weather Bureau office. "'Weather Bureau, Galveston, Texas, "'September 10, 1900. "'To all at home. "'Very probably you little expect "'to get a letter from me, "'but here I am alive and without a scratch. "'That is what few can say "'in this storm-swept city. "'I have been here two weeks "'to take the place of a man "'who is on a three-month's leave, "'after which I go back to Memphis.' OF COURSE YOU HAVE HEARD OF THE STORM THAT PASSED OVER THIS PLACE LAST FRIDAY NIGHT, BUT YOU CANNOT REALIZE WHAT IT REALLY WAS. I HAVE SEEN MANY SEVERE STORMS, BUT NEVER ONE LIKE THIS. I REMAINED IN THE OFFICE ALL NIGHT. IT WAS IN A BUILDING THAT STOOD THE STORM BETTER THAN ANY OTHER IN THE TOWN, though IT WAS BADLY DAMAGED AND ROCKED FRIGHTFULLY IN SOME OF THE BLAST. IN THE CORNER OF THE CITY WHERE I LODGED, WHICH WAS THE SOUTH PART, EVERYTHING WAS SWEPT AND NEARLY ALL DROWNED. THE FAMILY WITH WHOM I ROOMED WERE ALL LOST. "'I lost everything I brought with me from Memphis "'and a little money, "'but I think $80 will cover my entire loss. "'I am among the fortunate ones.' "'The local forecast official, Dr. Klein, "'lives in the same part of the city, "'and his brother, one of the observers here, "'boarded with him. "'They did not fare so well. "'Their house went with the rest "'and were out in the wreckage nearly all night. "'Dr. Klein lost his wife, "'but after being nearly drowned themselves, "'they saved the three children.' As soon as possible the next morning, after the waters went down, I went out to the south end to see how they fared out there. I had to go through the wreckage of buildings nearly the entire distance, for one mile, and when I got there, I found everything swept clean. Part of it was still under water. I could not even find the place where I had been staying. But one who did not know would hardly believe that that had been a part of a city twenty-four hours before. I could not help seeing many bodies though I was not desirous of seeing them. I had once gave up the family with whom I stayed as lost, which has proved true as their bodies have all been found, but in the Kleins, I had more confidence in regard to their ability to come out of it. I soon got sick of the sights out there and returned to the office to put things in order as best I could. When I got to the office I found a note from the younger Klein telling me of the safety of all except the doctor's wife. They were all badly bruised from falling and drifting timber, and one of the children was very badly hurt and they have some fears as to her recovery. Mr. Broncosil, our printer, lives in another part of town that suffered as badly and is still missing, and we have given him up as lost. There is not a building in town that is uninjured. Hundreds are busy day and night clearing away the debris and recovering the dead. It is awful. Every few minutes a wagon load of corpses passes by on the street. The more fortunate are doing all they can to aid the sufferers, but it is impossible to care for all. "'There is not room in the building standing "'to shelter them all, "'and hundreds pass the night on the street. "'One meets people in all degrees of destitution. "'People partially clothed are the rule, "'and one fully clothed is an exception. "'The city is under military rule, "'and the streets are patrolled by armed guards. "'They are expected to shoot at once "'anyone found pilfering. "'I understand four men have been shot today "'for robbing the dead. "'I do not know how true it is "'for all kinds of rumors are afloat, "'and many of them are false.' "'We have neither light, fuel, nor water. "'I have gone back to candles. "'I am now writing by candlelight. "'A famine is feared, "'as nearly all the provisions were ruined by the water "'which stood from six to fifteen feet in the streets, "'and all communication to the outside is cut off. "'For myself I have no fear. "'I sleep in the office, "'I have food to last for some time and have water, "'and means of getting more when it rains "'as it frequently does here. "'And besides, I have made friends here "'who will not let me starve.' We had warning of the storm, and many saved themselves by seeking safety before the storm reached air. We were busy all day Thursday answering telephone calls about it and advising people to prepare for danger. But the storm was more severe than we expected. Dr. Klein placed confidence in the strength of his house. Many went to his house for safety, as it was the strongest built of any in that part of town, but of the forty-odd who took refuge there, less than twenty are now living." I have been very busy since the storm and had little sleep, but I intend to make up for sleep tonight. I do not know how or where I can send this, but will send it first chance. Do not worry on my account. Write soon, yours truly, John D. Blagden. Coming in Part 2 next week, the story behind the hymn, The Queen of the Waves, which is an old French hymn which was sung by French fishermen who sought protection from the storms. It was sung by the Sisters of St. Mary's Orphan Asylum in their heroic effort to calm the children as the water rose all around them, this event having been witnessed by three older boys who survived. Also coming in Part 2, more eyewitness accounts of the brutal effects of nature gone wild and the heroism on display that fateful day and in the days after the storm's landfall in Galveston. Join us next week Sunday night here at 1001 Heroes. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Be sure to check out our other 1001 Story shows, all of which are free to follow and have links listed for both Apple and Android in our show notes here. We appreciate reviews, and we thank you for joining us. Until next Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.